Okay, we'll make a start tonight and uh, we'll sing hymn number 572. Very welcome to the prayer meeting tonight and uh, we'll have some good singing as we sing 572. A wonderful Saviour is Jesus my Lord, a wonderful Saviour to me, he hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock where rivers of pleasure I see him. We'll all stand as we sing together.
Amen. We'll just ask our brother Mervyn to come and open in prayer tonight. pray. Loving Father, we thank thee again for the opportunity that we have to draw aside in these moments in the attitude of prayer and in praise and worship. We thank thee for the opportunity we'll have of having thy word opened. And we pray, our loving Father, that as we gather together as the people of God, that thou will be pleased to again be one of our number. We thank thee for that very particular promise in thy word that tells us where two or three are gathered together in thy name. There you've promised, you've given an eternal covenant that you will be in the midst of them. And loving Father, we pray that we will be conscious of a sense of thy nearness and of thy presence. We thank thee for each brother and sister. We thank thee for each child of God who's gathered with us. And we pray, our loving Father, that thou wilt bless each one of us and may we be in our own hearts encouraged and strengthened as we for these moments have come aside. May we be like Ruth in thy word who gleaned in the field of the heavenly Boaz. She gleaned those handfuls of purpose. And we desire that even tonight as we would just be in this place for this time, that there would be that benefit that would be wrought in our souls and in our lives. We're not unmindful of those who will listen in and over the various mediums that uh, those who will be reached even as they would either live or at some later time listen. We pray that the word of God as thou hast promised will have free course and be glorified. To this end, we pray for <coughs> thy servant, our brother Samuel. We thank thee for him and we pray that as he comes to Open up thy word that thou wilt endure him with the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for thy promise that ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And we pray our loving Father that tonight he'll be very conscious that he has been taken up by the power of God the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for the words that we have sung together. We thank thee for the one who is our Savior. A wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord. A wonderful Savior to me. We thank thee that we are those who are hidden in Christ. We are those who are blessed in him. And we pray that tonight as we have this time together that thou will be pleased to come and bless us again. We're not unmindful of all the various needs of our congregation. And we thank thee that thou art able to meet every need. And we thank thee for the verse that has been uh, set before us at the beginning of this year. With God, nothing, nothing is impossible. And Lord, we thank thee that we have proved as a people the sufficiency of thy grace. And we pray that we'll continue to prove in the days that lie ahead all the goodness that thou hast for us as a people, as a congregation, as individuals and as families. Continue with us, for we pray and ask these things in the Saviour's name. Amen. Thank you, Mervyn. Um, we're going to sing another hymn, hymn number 204. 204, let us sing of his love once again, of the love that can never decay, 
of the blood of the Lamb who was slain till we praise him again in that day. Hymn 204, let us sing of his love once again. We'll stand as we sing.
Amen. That's good singing. I'm usually sitting at the back, so I don't hear the singing that you hear from up here. So that was really good singing tonight. Can I give a warm word of welcome to everyone that's here tonight, uh, to those in Sermon Audio, Facebook, and YouTube, and especially to those who have braved it out tonight in spite of who is in the pulpit. Um, I saw Tanya coming in tonight. We haven't seen Tanya in a long time. It's nice to see Tanya with us again, and uh, uh, we welcome you warmly back to Hebron again. Just some announcements about what's happening over the, next, over the weekend. Uh, Youth Fellowship tomorrow night. Uh, we're having a time of prayer, young people, so um, if there's things that you want us to remember in prayer, bring those with you. Uh, let us know, and our, uh, Jonathan will be here to speak, uh, bring a short word of prayer, and then we'll spend the night in prayer together. On the Lord's Day, we have the early morning prayer time at 8 o'clock as usual, um, Sunday school at 10.30, and the Bible class at 10.45, and Mervyn will be speaking on possessing patience. The worship service, 12 o'clock, 12 noon, our own pastor, the Reverend Park, will be here, and the gospel service at 7 o'clock, so there will be the half hour of prayer before that. The following Sunday night is family night, and that is the 3rd of March. And that's a testimony from Margaret Cameron. A sinner saved by grace, Margaret, is a converted Roman Catholic. So you'll be very welcome to that um, and get the the invitations out to those to come in, to others to come in to that service. Can we just bring again the needs of the school before you? Um, We need a temporary primary school teacher for four months for the lower primary part of the the school. Um, If there's anyone that you know who can help with that regard, please get in contact with the Reverend Park. That's all the announcements, and um, we're just going to sing one more hymn. Sorry, Diane. Uh, one more hymn, 331, Sing the Wondrous Love of Jesus. All these hymns are about the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. You might have a guess where we're going later on, so we'll sing tonight, Sing the Wondrous Love of Jesus. Sing his mercy and his grace. And let's all stand as we sing.
was great singing. If you open your Bibles at John chapter 13, the Gospel of John chapter 13, we're going to read the first seven verses together. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things unto his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Amen. And we'll finish our reading there at verse 7. And we'll just ask the Lord to help us tonight as we look at this passage of God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is a living word. We thank you that when we come to it, that we have all that we need, that we have everything that you want us to know about God, about ourself, about salvation. And we pray that tonight as we look at your word that you will bring it alive to our hearts, that we will see our Savior, we will see ourself in all our need, and that we will be, once again, we will fall in love with the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Help me tonight, Lord, I pray. Lord, you know my weakness, you know my need of you. We pray that tonight that the Spirit of God will take me up and use me. We pray that each one will go away later, saying it was good to have gone there, for there we have met afresh with the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 The Gospels give us various accounts of our Lord's life. Some things are included in all the Gospels. Uh, like the feeding of the 5,000, somewhere in just two or three of the Gospels, and there are some passages or some parts that are only in one of the Gospels. Now, that all makes sense because they were written to different groups of people by different writers who had different viewpoints on what had happened over the life of the Savior. Matthew, for example, was written to the Jewish reader. So often when you read in the book of Matthew, you'll often find it saying that it might be fulfilled He was pointing out, he was referring everything back to the Old Testament. And Mark, on the other hand, was written to the Gentiles. So often he will be explaining the Jewish customs and he will be explaining the Jewish words that are used. Some people will try to say that all these differences in the gospel accounts are reasons to doubt the Bible, but actually they help to authenticate it. If you were trying to put together a fake witness of something, then you will be trying to ensure that all the accounts are identical. And any teacher will tell you that if they get four reports in 
about something that happened, and they're all identical word for word, well then there's going to be an investigation into who copied who. But four reports that differ slightly, the overall account is the same, and that's what we find in the Gospels. The emphasis, perhaps, is on different things. When we read the first, or these five chapters, there's five chapters here in John, John 13 through to 17, we find here things that are not, not recorded in the other Gospels. And John, more than the other Gospels, really slows down the whole account, and he zooms in to a particular time just before the crucifixion. These few days, few hours just before the Lord was taken to the cross. And these chapters contain some of the most precious sayings of the Lord as he talks to his disciples, as he prays to his heavenly Father. They're known as the table talk of Christ, where he speaks to his disciples around the Passover. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading through these chapters, and there's a phrase that really touched my heart, and that's the phrase that I want us to look at tonight, and it's at the end of the first verse that we read, John 13, verse 1, and it's the bit at the end that really spoke to me, and it says this, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And tonight, I want us for a little time just to look at this verse and consider the love that Christ has for his people. It's something that I feel perhaps is too difficult because it's, it's, it's a, a massive subject. But tonight I hope that as we scratch the surface of this, that we will be blessed as we think about it. Before we get to that, the end of that verse, I want us to just think about the context of where we're at in the scriptures, because it's important. And at the start of the verse, John tells us here when it happened. It happened just before the Passover feast. Now, this is the point where I was considering bringing our sister Pat up to talk to us about the Passover. Um, but maybe that wouldn't, maybe, I don't think she would do that just tonight. She was, she, she's given me a smile anyway. I don't think she would be happy to come up and do that. But the Passover, it was the high point of the Jewish year. It was when Jews from all over the land came to Jerusalem. Jerusalem would have been bursting at the seams. What was the Passover? Well, it was the feast that was instituted, remembered by God, back whenever he rescued his people from the slavery of Egypt. Remember the ten plagues and how the Lord used that to make Pharaoh convince him to make the people go. Pharaoh hardened his own heart at the start, and yet then at the end, the Lord hardened his heart until finally it got to the point where they pushed the children of Israel out. They wanted rid of them. God sent that final plague, which was the death of the firstborn. Remember how the Israelites, they had to eat unleavened bread. They had to leave in a hurry. They wouldn't have enough time for their dough to rise. And remember how they had to choose a lamb. And that lamb had to be spotless. It had to be perfect. It had to be without blemish. That lamb was killed. It was eaten. But the blood wasn't wasted. The blood was used. It was brushed upon the doorposts and on the lintel of the homes of the people of God. Exodus 12 tells us, And the blood shall be for you a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be for you a memorial. Ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. 
That was the institution of the Passover. A lamb was to be slain. It was to be a substitute for the firstborn. And now we find about 1,500 years later, the Passover still being celebrated. But this time, there's something very different about to happen because there's about to be a great fulfillment of that type. Because here we have sitting around the table with his disciples is the one who John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And Paul, Paul explicitly links the death of Christ with that of the Passover over in 1 Corinthians. He says, For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. The one who would die in the place of his people, the one who would die as a substitute for his people and redeem them from the slavery of sin. But his death was going to be different because it was not going to be a continual sacrifice because the sacrifices from the Old Testament, there was the blood of millions and millions of lambs and bulls and goats that have been offered over the years, which Hebrews tells us could never take away sin. But this was going to be different because this man, Hebrews 10 verse 11, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. This sacrifice was going to be different. Now notice the next part of the verse, John 13 verse 1, the next part just before the bit we're going to come to, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of the world unto the Father. And what hour was that? It was the hour of his death, the hour when he would offer up himself as the perfect sacrifice, as the substitute. I want us to notice here that this was not plan B. This was not a rescue mission that somehow had gone wrong and and the Lord had ended up taken by surprise and somehow the people had turned against him and he ended up on the cross. No, this was his hour. This was what had been the plan. And a few days earlier, we we find it written in Matthew 20 verse 28, the Lord had said to his disciples, the son of man has come not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for the many. So here's Christ. He's facing the cross. He's going to be the Passover lamb. He knew the sins of his people that was going to be placed upon him. He knew he would suffer physically. He knew he would suffer the rod of his father being laid upon him. And yet in the midst of this, we get a glimpse into the thoughts of Christ. We get a glimpse into the heart of Christ. And what is that heart? It's not a heart of regret. It's not a heart of hatred. It's not a heart of uh, being unhappy about what was in front of him. It's a heart of love for his people. Let's just look at that love. The three simple aspects of that love. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. We're just going to look at the past love, the present love, and the future love of our Savior. Having loved his own. There's the love of Christ in the past. Having loved his own. So you might ask, when did that love start? Well, the immediate context of this is is the disciples, but it is very applicable to all of us. And did it start, did that love for his disciples start whenever he called them? Did he just first love James and John when he saw them in the boat and he called them? Did it start when he saw Matthew? Did his love for Matthew start when he saw him collecting the tax at his tax table. Some might think, well, perhaps it started whenever they forsook those lives and they followed Christ. But if we make the love of Christ start at that point, then we have made 
an error because we're making that love something which is dependent on something that the disciples have done. Did Christ only start loving us whenever we trusted him for salvation? Does he love us because we loved him? Well, the Bible actually tells us it's the other way around. It tells us in 1 John 4 verse 19 that we love him because he first loved us. Turn with us to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. There's a lovely verse there from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31 and the verse 3. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Christ's love for his people isn't something that started at their birth. It's not even something that started at their new birth. It's something that stretches way back into eternity. It's an eternal love, a love that we cannot comprehend. F.B. Meyer commenting on this verse in Jeremiah says, you must go back beyond your birth, beyond Calvary, beyond Bethlehem, beyond the fall of man and the Garden of Eden. And as you stand and you look out into the immensity of eternity, believe that you were loved and chosen in Christ, the object of God's most tender solicitude and pity. It's an amazing thought that before our birth, before time itself, God had set his love upon a people, a people who were unlovely, a people who deserved nothing, but yet a people who he set his love upon. And why was that love set upon them? Well, if you look in Deuteronomy chapter 7, there's some verses there. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and 7 and 8. And here, God is speaking to his own people, the people of Israel. It says, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. Why did he set his love upon them? Simply because he loved them. If you read the book of Genesis, there's nothing in there that would make you look at the people, the, the, the ancestors of the children of Israel, that would make you think, well, here's a people who are deserving of God's mercy. When you read through the chapters, you, you find it's murder, it's incest, it's idolatry, it's lying, stealing, drunkenness, people who all deserve the wrath of God. And yet, in mercy... God chose out of that a people to be his own. And it's the same today with ourselves. There's not one of us has anything to recommend us to God. Each one of us is a rebel. Each one of us is born a sinner. Each one of us uh, is an enemy of God. But yet in mercy and in love, he chose a people to be his own. Turn over to the New Testament to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And here, Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. 
There's the reason that we can have a confidence in that love because we're not chosen in ourselves. We're chosen in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. It's a great source of comfort, a great source of security for God's people. A few moments ago, we were considering that it was the Passover time, the time when Christ would be our Passover. And if you think even in the book of Revelation, it talks there about the Lord Jesus being the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. He was the one who, whose love stretched back into eternity, back to before the world began, back to before the first sin had even been committed. Back then, God had chosen a people to be his own, and he had ordained the death of the Savior to be the fulfillment of his plan to save a people to be his own. Now, we can't understand this. Our finite minds can only grasp onto it because it's in God's word and we can believe it and we can stand upon it and be sure of it because God's word tells us that in the past God loved us. We look at the present, having loved his own which were in the world. There's the present, in the world. John here tells us that the love of Christ for his people continues for them while they're in the world. And as I said, the immediate context of this is, is the disciples who were sitting there around the table with them at the meal. Think about the people that were there. These are the disciples that had failed the Lord on many occasions. You know, in Luke 10, they came to the Lord. They had failed to heal the boy, and his father came to them. And it tells us that the Savior rebuked them for their being faithless. We think of Peter. Peter's there among the crowd. He failed the Lord. He was brash. He was self-assured. And yet, the Lord had to say to him, Get thee behind me, Satan. We think of Peter following afar off to the, to the cross. And there he denied the Lord in front of others. We think of Philip. Philip was in the crowd that was sitting with the Savior. And in the very next chapter of John, in John chapter 14, the Savior here, he's talking to his closest followers, men who had, had, would be charged with taking the gospel to the world. And he had to say to Philip, have you been so long time, have I been so long time with you, and yet you have not known me, Philip? We think of Thomas. Thomas was there. He wasn't in the upper room the first time. And he refused to believe. And he said, I'll not believe until I put my finger into the, the marks of his in the hands. Even after the resurrection, we, we read in Mark 16 that the, the Savior had to upbraid the eleven for their unbelief and the hardness of their heart. These were Christ's chosen disciples, but yet they were just men. They made mistakes. They were in the world, yet he loved them. And we're no better. Our lives are they not a constant struggle with unbelief, with sin, with the fear of man, with the love of the things of the world? Yet in spite of this, for those of us who are in Christ, we are loved while we're in the world. Not just when we get to heaven, but we're loved today. We tend to love what is lovable. There's a saying that some people are hard to love, or they have a face that only their mother could love, or something like that. Isn't that what it is? But in the main, we do love our families. We love our, our close friends. And the Lord uses the example in Isaiah chapter 49 of the woman and her child. Isaiah 49 verse 15, it tells us, Can a woman 
forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb. Yea, they may forget, yet I will not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. We see here a love that God has for us, which is even greater than the love of a mother would, that a mother would have for her child. And even though, humanly speaking, it's possible that a mother could forget her child, yet God promises never to forget us. In fact, we're graven on the palms of his hands. That's, that, that's permanence, isn't it? That's an unfailing love. But God's love is even more than that because it's not those who are lovable that he loves. It's his enemies. And we find in God's word that it says that God commandeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. A couple of chapters over in John chapter 15, there's, there's a verse that I often look at and often think, I cannot understand this. John 15 verse 9. And here Christ is speaking to the disciples. And he says, as the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Could there be a greater love? The Savior loves us in the same way that the Father loves him. There couldn't be a more trustworthy love than that. A love as Christ, Christ's love for us as the Father loves him. So we have a love that Christ has for his people in the past. We have a love in the present. But we also have a love that extends into the future. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. That's the future. That word end there, it means eternal, to the finish. It's the same word that is used by Christ when he says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And it's a blessing to know that that love of Christ is permanent, it's everlasting, it's unwavering. And that's what we've been building towards tonight because the love that Christ has for his people isn't based on anything that they have done. And so it's not going to be affected by anything that they will do. The love for Christ is from eternity past and it's going to last to eternity future. And nothing that we do is going to change that. And nothing that we go through will change that. Turn over to Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 and the verse 6. And here Paul is writing to the saints in Philippi. And he says in Philippians 1 verse 6, he says, He's being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul here is writing to the saints in Philippi, and he had a confidence in their salvation. He didn't write to them saying, I hope that you hang on to your salvation. He didn't write to them and say, well, you need to hang on to your salvation. He says, no. He had a confidence not in them. He had a confidence in the one who had begun the work, that he would perfect it. That word, perform it until the end. That really means he would perfect it. He would accomplish it. He would complete it. He would finish it. And that's the assurance that we all have. The love that Christ has for us is one that is from eternity past to eternity future. For the last verse, if you just turn to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. Probably one of the best known chapters of God's word. 
some of the most blessed texts that are through it. Romans chapter 8 and verse 35. We're just going to read from 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ, which is in from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. With the permanence still here. It's not a fleeting love, it's not a changeable love. And the trials and the toils of life are all listed here. There's persecution, there's wars, there's threat, there's death. There's the things that are happening today, things present, and there's things that might happen tomorrow, things to come. And what's the conclusion at the end of all of this? None of these things, none of them, will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. His love for us, it was never dependent on us in the past, and it's not going to be dependent on us in the future. His love is not dependent on what we've done. It's not dependent on what we're doing. It's not dependent on what we will do. It's a love that was from eternity past and brought about with the gift of Christ, our Passover lamb. That should give us confidence as we come in prayer tonight. Assurance that we have acceptance in him, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. As we come in a few minutes to pray, remember we're praying to one who loves us, one who has loved us from all eternity, and one who loves us now in spite of all of our failures, and one who will continue to love us. And while we ourselves will feel our own unworthiness, and, and rightly so, for even at our very best that we're only wretches in the sight of a holy God, remember we're not standing before him in our own righteousness. We're standing there in Christ, and in him we have acceptance, and for his sake we have acceptance. May that give us all confidence tonight as we pray, assurance as we come to pray, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Amen. I pray that the Lord will bless his word to our hearts just now. We're going to sing just one hymn before we come to our time of prayer. Hymn 344. I hear the words of love, I gaze upon the blood, I see the mighty sacrifice, and I have peace with God. We'll stand as we sing this hymn together.
Thank you, Diane. Um, as we come to prayer, just remember the, those who are on our prayer list. Remember, especially our sister Lydia, and uh, there's other names on there, James Wallace, Margaret Carey, Anne, Marion, Elizabeth, Derek, Davy and Margaret, Peter Moy, Pat, Joanne, Dorothy Blair, Molly Kyle, Peter McCook, Baby Jacob, Mary Owens, Ernie Manteith, Cecil McKendry, and Lily from Romania. I'll not say that last version, that last one. Um, that lady's out of hospital. She's doing very well, actually. The Lord answered prayer for um, that pastor's wife. Remember to pray for the land of Ukraine and for the land of Israel that the Lord will bring the wars there to cease. So we'll just at this time, we'll just say good night to those who are tuning in online. Uh, you can have a time of prayer at home and remember those things as we come down to a time of prayer here in Hebron. <laughs>